Well, good morning. Wow. Yeah. We are going to be in 1 Corinthians 15. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and flip there. If not, there should be one near you. And as you're flipping there, I just want to say thank you guys for this opportunity to be with you. What a joy, what a, what a privilege it is to be with some of our partners. Um, we thank you guys for your prayers for us, for our ministry. Uh, we thank you for your gifts to the cooperative program. I know you're kind of figuring out this Southern Baptist thing, but if you don't know, you give. The Southern Baptists a long time ago realized we could do a whole lot more if we kind of cooperate with one another. Um, and so every time you give to the cooperative program or the Lottie Moon Christmas offering, you give to support us and about 4,000 people just like us all over the world. So thank you for those gifts. Thank you for coming and, and being with us. The team you sent was such a blessing to us. We had such a, a great time just walking down a lot of dirty roads and talking to people about Jesus. One of your church members actually was on the first trip ever, the first short-term team that came out, Brian and Bethany Lewis. We're on that very first team over 10 years ago that came out and served with us in a little village um, right on the border of Mali. And Brian somehow, in about six days, managed to break every single cultural faux pas that exists among our people, the Songhai. Um, man, I could go on and on. I do want to tell you one at least. This is how you curse someone. So if you come visit us, don't do this. That's really bad. So Brian, like day one, decides... Here's a group of elders, like the leaders of this village. I think this is a great time to tell them about the Ten Commandments. And Brian proceeded to tell our elders about all ten of those commandments. And so that's just one of about a hundred stories I could tell about Brian. But it helped us understand what we need to do with orientation a little better. Okay. Long introduction. 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 5. If you wouldn't mind, I know you just sat down. Would you stand as we read these words from our God? Paul, as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit, he writes the following. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Let's pray. Father, we just ask this morning you would give us eyes to see, you would give us ears to hear from you. Give us faith to believe in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. When you get malaria, and I hope you never do, because <laughs> it's miserable, usually you get a terribly bad fever, and usually you get a lot of vomiting. It's just miserable. So what you'll do, you'll go to a doctor, and he'll say, well, what's going on? Well, I've got this really bad fever, and I'm throwing up all the time. And some doctors, not good ones, won't take the time to do a malaria test. Instead, they'll just, instead, they'll just treat the symptoms. And so they'll give you Tylenol for your headache or your fever, and they'll give you some flagyl for the vomiting. And you take those things, and your headache does get better. The fever does go away, at least for a little bit. Um, the vomiting does stop, at least for a little while. But then what always happens is two or three late, days later, that person dies because the root issue was never dealt with. A lot of times, I think people like me, in situations like this, are very tempted to preach to the symptoms. We look at a room like this, and we see all this potential. We don't know if you know how 
fortunate you are to be able to gather in a climate-controlled environment with little to no fear that the government or a different religion is going to come charging in here any moment and shut us down, to have literate, trained pastors preach the word to you faithfully week after week, to have a Bible in your own language that you can read, to have fellow believers all around you, to have access to books and music and podcasts and radio stations and bookstores, all designed to help you grow in your faith. These are things that the majority of your brothers and sisters all across the world can't even fathom. And so we see all that in a room like this, and yet we so often see rooms like this full of people who just don't seem to care all that much about making disciples of all nations. And so people like me, we think, maybe they just don't know, right? They're not giving their life to that, so maybe they just don't understand. And so we'll plead passionately. We'll spend our time talking about the 2.9 billion people on planet Earth right now who have little to no access to the gospel. We'll just plead with you about that. We'll, we'll plead with you to remember your calling and this task that Christ has entrusted us, this great commission. And, and sermons like that are good, and they have their place. They can definitely get some amens, might even stir someone to action for a bit, might even change the direction of a church for a while, but what so often happens is that same church will eventually die a self-centered death because the root issue never gets dealt with. And the root problem I've come to believe is people like that and churches like that have never truly encountered the God of the Bible. They've never truly let his gospel just mine the depths of their heart. We have this little mantra on our team. If you come visit us, we say, theology informs ecclesiology, which drives missiology. Now, don't write that down. That's really an overcomplicated way of just saying a simple truth that basically is this. What we do, our actions, they expose our theology. We, we can talk the talk, we can have all this spiritual jargon, but our actions, our affections, our appetites, that reveals a theological root, what it is that we truly believe. So if you're not leveraging your life and your resources to make disciples of all the nations, I don't think that's because you've not heard enough sermons on missions. If you're not giving your life to that, I don't think it's because this church doesn't offer enough programs to facilitate that. It's my conviction that a heart that gets more worked up watching the news at night or, or a heart that gets more emotionally stirred watching 20-year-olds play a game that is indifferent to the fact that 75,000 people every single day enter a Christless eternity having never heard the name of Jesus. A heart that gets more worked up about those boys playing a game than that stat, I believe, has never truly met the God of this Bible, has never truly understood this gospel, this passage this morning that I remind you, Paul's writing to a church, to Christians, and he's reminding them of what? The gospel. And he says, this is the most important thing. This is of utmost and first importance. He reminds us the gospel is our only hope to treat those underlying issues, not just symptoms, but the underlying issues. In this letter to the Corinthians, as you might know, Paul's been pleading with the church there on two main fronts. The church there had two big problems. One, there was a lot of disunity going on in their church, and the second, they were tempted to 
compromise with the culture they found themselves in. And, and Paul covers a lot of subjects, but they all really fit into one of those two big camps. And then we get to chapter 15, and Paul seems to be saying, now what connects all of that is the gospel. This fundamental reality that we've just sung about, that we've just prayed about, that the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, that directly and very practically affects every single aspect of the life of a church and every single aspect of the life of a believer. It's the gospel that saved them, and it's the gospel that's their only hope for unity in the church. It's the gospel that's going to be their only hope to safeguard them against compromise with the culture. So this gospel, they say, they received it, Paul says, when he preached it to them. It's a gospel that must be preached. There's no such thing as a wordless gospel. Paul preached it. They received it. It has to be received. And it's the same gospel, he says, they now need to stand on. The same gospel they must continue to stand on and continue to hold fast to. It's a first and utmost importance. So often we think of the gospel as the ABCs of the faith, the entry point, the hoop we kind of jump through to get in. But it's more like what Tim Keller says, the gospel is the A to Z's of the faith. Not just the entry point, it's the whole thing. We have to realize the gospel is critical for every part of our Christian life. And it's so extremely important that we understand what the gospel is. Because if we're not careful, gospel becomes one of those junk drawer words that can just mean a whole lot of things and absolutely nothing. I think a lot of us, if we're not careful, go through life believing a gospel that if we're honest, it kind of goes like this. We're in a school, so this makes sense. It's the story of a heavenly school principal, and he has all these mischievous little students. And the gospel goes like this. We failed the final exam, right? We got an F on the test, and we know when we take an F home to mom and dad, it's going to be some unpleasant consequences. So the gospel goes, there's this nice classmate named Jesus, and he's really smart, and he volunteers to take the test in our place, and he scores an A+. And so the gospel is, we get to go home with an A-plus on our report card and not an F. We get to avoid those unpleasant consequences that that F would have brought about. There's, there's a lot to that, but that is very lacking as a gospel, because the problem with that story is Jesus is handy, Right? He's useful. I'm, I'm, it's nice of him to have done that, but I don't necessarily love him. I mean, in this gospel, I get some stuff. I get to use him as my get-out-of-hell-free card, and I'm thankful to Jesus for that. But my heart isn't necessarily transformed. And See, if that's your gospel, which I'm afraid it is for so many of us, then the day-to-day -day Christian life, it just doesn't make sense. It's going to feel like a facade. If it's just you get heaven later and not hell, that doesn't seem to do much for the here and now. That sort of gospel doesn't just naturally overflow into a life of giving everything you have, everything you are, to make disciples of all nations. That sort of gospel, it doesn't transform your affections and your appetites, but rather it so often simply baptizes our own self-centeredness and then gives it a Christian name. What I want to press into this morning is just a deeper understanding of the richness of the one and only true gospel. That we see it as Paul does, as this first and utmost importance, as the only thing that's going to hold everything together and make sense of every aspect of the life of believer and the life of the church. See, it's my conviction that the only hope Mission Church has to be a light in this community and kind of a, an outpost and an instrument of discipled nations, 
is for you to know ever deeper this unfathomable richness of the gospel, this good news that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. That in that truth, we would have our affections stirred. And they wouldn't be stirred by global statistics, but rather by a greater satisfaction in Christ. And then out of that would just kind of naturally flow a people and a church joyfully, not begrudgingly, not because somebody talked you into it, but joyfully giving everything they have and everything they are into reaching the nations. So what I want to think about is, what does our union in Christ mean? Have you ever noticed in Paul's letters especially, this little phrase he keeps saying, in Christ. Paul will use that little phrase over 200 times in his letters. And this little phrase carries so much weight. Um, In Romans 5, for instance, we see that this little phrase is the basis we have for justification, our glorification. It's the source of our sanctification. It's the intimate communion with God that Jesus promises in John 14. Then Colossians is going to come around and say, it's this little phrase that sums up the revelation of God's mystery. It's the hope of glory. This tiny little phrase is all of that and so much more. And yet I'm so afraid so many of us don't even understand it. It's just kind of spiritual jargon, something theologically cool you can put at the end of an email. And so what I want to do is just press into this little phrase, in Christ. And, and where I'd like to go, I'd like to get the reformer, Martin Luther, to help us. I want to look at about 1520 as a big moment in Martin Luther's life. And I just challenge you, get to know this man, Martin Luther. He is far from perfect. But it's in his imperfections, it's in his struggles that I find so much comfort. Because Martin Luther struggled with the same sort of things that so many of us struggle with. In particular, early in his life, Martin Luther struggled by thinking he had to earn his salvation. He was just tore up with this idea, with his own sinfulness, and he was always working hard to earn that salvation, and he was earning it with a God that he was not convinced was all that gracious. In fact, Luther struggled, if he was honest, to even like this God, much less love him. And early on in his life, that toxic combination led to the most terrifying form of Christianity imaginable. Just one lived in absolute fear, and one, I'm afraid, still exists today, maybe even in this room. Some of you might just every day so naturally assume you've got to earn your standing with God all over again. Every morning you just wake up and say, am I going to do enough today? Is he going to be pleased with me today? Or maybe some of you, you just wake up every day just so naturally assume the living God is far less good and far less kind than he truly is. So the issue for Luther was Romans 1.17. In that verse, Paul writes, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. We love this passage, but for years, Luther despised this message. And he despised it because he knew all too well his own sinfulness, his own unrighteousness. So Luther writes, if God is righteous and I am not righteous, then by his very righteousness, he is automatically against me. So I'm terrified of this sort of God. But then one day, having read this passage many times, he was reading it again as he sat in the tower of Castle Church there in Wittenberg, and he realized for the first time his eyes were opened that the righteousness of God is something God has that he shares with us. And not just his righteousness, God shares with us his glory, his wisdom, his power, his life. So when Luther saw that, he wrote, It was if I'd entered paradise through open gates. 
I was altogether born again. The very phrase, the righteousness of God, which I had hated before, was the one that now I loved best of all. That Luther, for the first time, found he could be confident and secure before a good and gracious God. And then Luther, as Luther typically did, sets out to explain it to common folk like us. He sets out to explain, how is it then that God can share his righteousness with sinners? And his answer is this little phrase we're coming back to, in Christ. That's how he does it. And he explained it in a little tract called The Freedom of the Christian. And the key verse in his explanation of the gospel, it wasn't found in Romans. He didn't go to one of the other epistles. Anybody know where he went? Song of Songs. Like That was probably going to be about the 50th guess, maybe. Way down there. And in particular, he went to chapter 2, verse 16, where you have this bride, and she says to her groom, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And from that verse, Luther argues that the grace in which God gives us is like a marriage. And so he tells the story of a marriage between a prostitute and a king. Now, this prostitute, no matter what she does, she can try hard to change her ways, she can quit her actions, she can do all that, but none of that's ever going to make her the queen. The only way she becomes the queen is when the king says to her, I take you to be my queen, to be my wife. Michael Reeves, in a, in a terrific little book called Rejoicing in Christ, he reminds us what happens in a marriage ceremony. Some of you guys were at a wedding yesterday, and, and what you saw, what you witnessed is a bride and a groom look at one another and then say to each other, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have is yours. I share it with you. And so Luther says, you have this king and you have this prostitute, and it comes to the marriage. And the prostitute says to the king, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. What's she have? Debts, diseases, shame illegitimate children maybe that's what she has and she shares it all with him she throws it all on him but then he turns to her and says to her the king says to her all that I am I give to you and all that I have I give to you I share with you and at that moment the prostitute becomes a queen I don't know if you've ever seen the musical my fair lady you have you're in it um it's kind of like that. She doesn't know how to talk properly. This prostitute turned queen doesn't know queenly ways yet, but that doesn't change the fact that she is the queen. And Luther says that's exactly how it is when we become a Christian. That is exactly what it means to be in Christ, union with Christ. We, like that prostitute, have said to Jesus, all that I have my sin, my death, my condemnation, my judgment, I give it to you. And we throw all that to Christ. He takes it, he condemns it on the cross, and then he turns to us, us who are by nature objects of his wrath, us who are dead in our sins and trespasses, he turns to us and says, all that I am, I give to you. I share my life with you, my righteousness, my sonship, my eternal blessings, it's all yours. And at that moment, we are declared righteous. That's who we are. Now, like that prostitute turned queen, we don't instantly start talking or acting properly. So Christians are at the same time sinners, slowly adjusting to the ways of Christ, sometimes painfully slowly being transformed more and more into Christ. 
painfully, a lot more often than we'd like to admit, still a mess, but at the very same time, we are righteous. We have the righteousness of Christ. That we still have sin, we're still sinners, but by our faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness of Christ. Now, it's really important to remember, this wasn't something that was inside of us that God just kind of fanned into flame. This is an alien righteousness. This is totally outside of us that has been imputed and given to us. It's been transferred to our account so that though we're sinners, we are considered righteous. That's what this little phrase, in Christ, is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. And at the heart of the gospel, you have this marriage swap that Luther is talking about. My sin imputed to Jesus, his righteousness imputed to me. And it's only in that twofold transaction that God does not compromise his own integrity to secure our salvation. But rather, God punishes sin fully as it's imputed to Christ so that he is both the just and the justifier, as Romans 3 tells us. My sin goes to Jesus. His righteousness comes to me in the sight of God. That is unbelievably freeing. That is like incredibly life-giving. You settle for anything less, the Christian life will not make sense. Paul knew that the Corinthian church's only hope in unity within the church and fighting compromise with the culture was getting this right. Mission church's only hope to be a light and to do your calling that God has given you is to get this right, to have your affections transformed so much by this gospel that you would joyfully live out your calling. It's your only hope of dealing with sin. Luther says, when the devil throws up our sin and declares to us that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak like this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? Does this mean I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means. For I know one who has suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And where he is, there I shall be also. No other religion can say that. No other religion can admit the consequences of their sin. Every other world religion. Listen. Most of what is labeled cultural Christianity, right here in the Bible Belt, the way they treat sin is the way Southerners do greetings. You know what I'm talking about? It's always pretending that everything's fine when it's so obviously not fine. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. That our sin invokes the wrath of a holy God. And not just your sin. All your actions, even your good ones, apart from Christ, done in your own strength, like you on your best day, like when you're super kind, when you're forgiving, when you recycle, when you put the seat down. I mean, you on that day, God says through his prophet Isaiah, all that's like filthy rags. And that's your English translators being very kind to you. You read our Zarma Bibles. We get it better than you guys. They get a lot closer to the Hebrew word there. That filthy rag, our Bible's translated as a dirty menstruation cloth. That's disgusting. That's gross. And every other religion and a whole lot of what gets labeled Christianity is nothing more than pretending and preaching that that kind of cloth can make you clean. No other religion can admit the full weight of and the wages of sin, and deal with that kind of sentence. Deal with that kind of judgment. It would crush them. 
So we see other religions, even cultural Christianity. What do we do with sin? We pretend it doesn't exist. We ignore it. We ignore the truth about it. Sin needs to be hidden. It needs to be managed, watered down, redefined, outweighed by good deeds. But not so for us. Not so for the Christian. We can step into the light. We can be exposed in all our sin, all our shame. We can admit that we do deserve death. We do deserve hell. Yet we can endure that because our debt has been satisfied completely in Christ. Luther says the most damnable heresy that has ever plagued man is that he can somehow make himself good enough to deserve to live with an all-holy God. See, this news is good. This gospel is so good, it like makes you want to move your family to Kazakhstan, right? It's that good. When your heart gets transformed like that, it, it, it does something to your heart. It makes you want to take your Saturdays and walk up and down 10th Avenue, right? That other people might hear this. The people who currently don't have access to this would hear it. If you don't treasure Christ like this, anything short of a gospel like this, you will be left with an anxiety-filled, joyless, Christless religion that Luther had. It's always going, he loves me, he loves me not. It's a tragic and cruel version of that. He loves me, he loves me not. It's taking Tylenol when you have malaria. This is the first importance. You miss this, you miss everything. I want to look at just one other aspect of our being in Christ. It's found just a little later in 1 Corinthians 15. If you look in verses 20 through 22, Paul's been talking a while now about the resurrection, and he comes to these verses, and he writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who've fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die... So also in Christ, all shall be made alive. We're kind of familiar with this, but are you tracking with Paul there? It's pretty incredible what he's saying. He is saying everything, and I mean everything, hangs on two people. Adam and Christ. He's saying, get this, let this blow your mind, you don't get to determine your destiny by your behavior. That goes against every other religion. That goes against our culture. That goes against every Barbie and Disney movie that I've been forced to watch with my kids where the message is always, you determine your destiny, right? You just got to find the hero within. Now, first off, that's just cruel. Because some of us, we've looked, and it's not there. I've searched. No Captain America. A lot of Mr. Bean, right? But infinitely more tragic than finding Mr. Bean instead of Captain America is a deeper problem. Our problem is that we are part of Adam's race. Our problem of sin didn't start with our acts of sin. It goes back before our birth. I don't just die because of my own sin. I die because I'm born into a sinful race. Therefore, I don't just live because of my own righteousness. I need to be born again into a new race. In Paul's mind, it's as if Adam and Christ are two first fruits. One, the first fruit of life, of death. The other, the first fruit of life. Now, go back real quick to verse 4 in the same chapter. And Paul writes that Christ was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. You ever tried to find that Scripture? Which one? Like, where does it say third day resurrection? Paul seems convinced we'd be tracking with him here. So, so where is it? It's not immediately clear. 
Some have suggested Jonah, others one of the Messianic Psalms, some even Hosea. But it's, it's hard to say for a certain what Paul's talking about, what passage he's referencing when it says, according to the Scriptures, third day resurrection. That is until we look at this chapter, I believe, and it's a whole context, and all of a sudden we see some clues. We see third day language followed by first fruit language there in verses 20 and 22. Now, think for a second. Where else do you see in all of Scripture third day mentioned alongside first fruits? Any guesses? How about Genesis 1? Like when you can get your answers in the beginning, that's the best place to go. All sorts of other places, third day comes up, but what a missionary by the name of Nicholas Lund argues in an essay he wrote, and I've become convinced of, is that Genesis 1 is the passage that Paul has in mind that's guiding his whole thought process here. So real quick, Genesis 1, let's look at this first third day. If we go to Genesis 1, we find, And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place. Let the dry land appear. And it was so, God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. Now, there on this third day in Genesis 1, what do we see happening? First thing you notice is there's land appearing out of water. Now, this is your first clue if you're tracking along in the Greek, Todd. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, something called the Septuagint, the word they use there in Genesis to translate the idea of appearing is going to be the same word that Paul now chooses in verse 5 when he talks about Jesus appearing to Cephas. He had lots of choices and words he could have used to convey that same idea. He chooses that one. That's small, maybe insignificant, but I think maybe our first clue. So this land appears rising up out of the water. Now, this idea of coming up out of the water is going to be key. It's going to be a common theme in Israel's history. You think, for instance, about Noah, how that's described. He's passing through the waters. You think about Israel going through the waters of the Red Sea. You have Jonah coming up out of the water. This is going to be a theme all through the Old Testament that even the New Testament writers are going to pick up on. And they're going to connect it to baptism. They're going to say, our going through the waters is actually our baptism. And then they're going to connect that. They're going to say baptism is actually resurrection language. You could think, for instance, of Colossians 2, Romans 6, 1 Peter 3. So Genesis 1, this third day, you have in one very real sense the first resurrection as land comes up out of its watery grave. And then out of that land, what do you see happening? You see quite literally the first fruits of creation. So you have a third day resurrection which produces first fruits of creation. Isn't that exactly Paul's point here in 1 Corinthians 15? We have a third day resurrection out of which is going to come the first fruits of a new creation. Now these first fruits in Genesis 1, you notice, they each reproduce according to their kinds. And they do that because they have seed inside them. Now what happens to the fruit happens to the seed. So it is, says Paul, with Adam and Christ. They are the first fruits of two very different crops, one to death, 
one to life. And that humanity is not made up of a bunch of individuals. It's made up of two people, Adam and Christ. And every one of us is merely a seed in one of those two fruits. Our entire eternal fate depends on which one you're in. And our problem is we were all born in Adam. We are all in Adam so that when he sinned and was declared guilty, it was as if we had sinned. We share his fate. And so our only hope is not cleaning up our act. It's not trying harder, but it's to be born again, to be in Christ, to be grafted out of that old rotten fruit and grafted into this new one, into Christ. So that in Christ, his death becomes our death. Think of Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ. I no longer live. So that Christ's life might become our life. Think of Corinthians. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old's past, the new has come. That's how it is to be a Christian. That's what it means to be in Christ. This is good news. This is a message that can turn hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. This is a message that 2.9 billion people right now have never heard, and they'll never hear it until those of us who have heard it actually believe it and stand on it and hold fast to it. Do you really believe this gospel? Because to get this message from here to those 2.9 billion, it's going to be costly. It's going to take a lot of people suffering. It's going to take some people going and being put in prison. It's going to take some people getting kidnapped. It's going to take some people being killed. And unless you treasure this gospel, you will not pay that sort of cost. You'll end up spending your life focused and worried and concerned about things that are going to rust and decay instead of giving your life to the only thing that matters. This morning, whether you've walked in here with a swagger, confident in yourself, or whether you've walked in here with a shame, nursing a guilt, secretly feeling you don't belong in a room like this. The answer for both of you is the same. Look to Christ. And would you hear him say to you this morning, all that I am, I give to you. All that I have, I share with you. Let's pray. Father, we just ask that you would do that even now. Work supernaturally in this room, Lord. Call hearts of stone. Make them hearts of flesh. Lord, we just ask that this would be a place and a people not known for people coming here, but for people being sent out from here. Lord, that this church would just impact this community and it would impact the world because they truly believe this gospel message, because their hearts and their affections and their appetites have been transformed. And to do anything different with their lives would seem foolish. God, would you do that? Even now, work in our hearts. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.